the keyboard. It just died. It just died in the middle of the show, just out of nowhere. And he just looked over at me. He was so mad. And afterwards, bodyguard comes over. Boss wants to see you. And I'm like, oh, great. Here we go. You go in the room, and he said, what happened? I said, well, the keyboard had just died, Prince. And he says, well, dang it, make a show out of it. He says, don't stand there like a deer in the headlights. You just, like, pick it up and throw it on the ground. I'll buy you a new one. Rock and roll. Make a show out of it. Who was Prince? That is what I wish reporters were asking. And everything he touched was brilliant. He was the best pimp I've ever seen. He was pretty ruthless with his public humiliation. I mean, he even did it during live shows. And I went back in the back room with the guys. Prince was good and hot. And uh, I said, look, y'all, this is not going to end well. Okay, Prince beat everyone. Uh, no one's ever beat him at ping pong. He was brilliant at it. Yeah, you just got opportunities with him that nobody else it was likely to give you. My sister and I will make out with each other on set if you want, and I'm like, whoa. Welcome to Chapter 5 of Who Was Prince? Chapter 5, Blame It on the Train, But the Boss is Already There. A lyric from the Bangles' classic Manic Monday, which of course was written by Prince. This chapter is about what it was like to work for Prince, what it was like to have him as a boss. Prince worked hard, harder than anyone around him could. So working for him could be tough. Some people said he basically told them that he didn't like my kind because I was a bit too leisurely. Of course, no one around Prince was ever lazy, but when the boss has a standard for himself that's sky high, he ends up being extremely demanding of everyone else. And sometimes he had to discipline people. But he had different ways of setting different people straight. Keyboardist Morris Hayes remembered one particularly tough moment with the boss in Japan. 1996, we had a big blowout with Prince when we were in Japan. You know, it was his fault. So when we got to Japan, we only had like about three days before the tour was going to start. So typically what we would do is take those three days and like rehearse the show. But of course, in true Prince fashion, he decided we're going to jam. We're just going to groove (laughs) and we're not running over the show. And so there was a lot of cues that he forgot. And so we got in a lot of trouble because... If he jumps to the third verse and it's supposed to be the second verse and he starts singing the third verse. So the the split decision you have to make as an individual musician is do I follow him and go with him or do I play what I'm supposed to play right here? Everybody's got to make that decision at the same time. Guess what? Two may decide to follow him and two may decide to go where he goes and that's called a train wreck. We had a couple of train wrecks because he cut to the verse. Some of us decided to go with him, and some said, no, um, that's not what's supposed to happen. It's going to adjust the whole trajectory of the song. And so on one hand, he would say, just follow me. You know, if, if I jump, you know, if I go here, go here. But then when it when it would go horribly wrong, then he'd say, well, if I jump off a cliff, are you going to jump off the cliff behind me? So when you don't make the good decision, then guess what? We got the meeting in his office after the show. He wouldn't talk to us. He would use our uh, road manager, Ian Jeffrey, was our great road manager, and, and he was the mouthpiece. You could be sitting right there. He wouldn't talk to you. He'd talk to Ian, and Ian would tell you. <laughs> it was really uh, a difficult thing, but it got real funny style. Like, like I mean, seriously, like, he's sitting right there, and he's talking to the road manager, like, tell Morris that this, that, and the other, and I'm sitting, I'm like, I can hear you, bro. 
<laughs> he was like, I don't, I can't talk to you guys if y'all are going to blow it like that. It was bad. The thing is, Prince didn't see mistakes as mistakes. A real performer could and should be able to keep the show flowing. He was great at making a mistake and making it seem like it was cool. He could repeat the mistake if he wanted to. It just sounded like that's what he intended to do. That's how good he was. Wendy Melvoin remembered him the same way. One of the greatest things he ever used to say is, if you make a mistake on stage, make it twice, then it's not a mistake. Do it twice, it's not a mistake. So, you know, you you could always hear him make one flub and he'd do the same flub twice. And that's a philosophy he stuck with his whole life on all of his instruments. Many people recalled Prince saying, it's not a mistake until you stop, like until you react in a way that makes it clear to the audience that you've made a mistake. And that had a huge impact on Morris Hayes. Once you stop, then everybody knows, "Uh uh-oh, there's trouble. And if things went a little wrong, just rip up the whole set. We didn't like the equipment we got one night for an after show. It was terrible, man. The gear was, everything was just lame. They brought us some wax stuff, and we took a break after playing a few songs, and Prince just said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go back there, and we're going to tear all this crap up. We're going to just, like, tear all of it to pieces. I'm going to give you the cue, and I mean lay waste to everything on that stage. (laughs) Man, I'm from my old school, bro. I had to work hard and hustle for my little equipment, you know what I'm saying? The last thing I would do is break a piece of my gear. And just the thought of, like, I'm going to pick up this keyboard and stomp it and smash it, it was breaking my heart because I'm just sitting here thinking, like, this costs money, man. I can't break it. And it was the weirdest thing. We were all so pissed about the way that the gear was. Like, we broke it. Uh, Prince smashed his guitar. Sonny karate kicked his amp. Michael Bland just stood up and just spread his drums out all over the place. We demolished the stage. And the people thought we had lost our minds. And we were so happy. We went in the back and we were just laughing like crazy men. And once we tore it up, I felt good about it. It, it, It was that mob caveman thing that came over me that just like, yeah, let's tear some more crap up. Let's go out here and like trash the streets now and like turn over cars. And Prince, he wrote them a check for 50 grand to cover all of their equipment that night. Just like that, whammo. Here's your money. Go buy some decent equipment. And it was like crazy. We were on the bus like all wired up like Beavis and Butthead. Like, <laughs> it was like, it was like great. <laughs> it was crazy. Prince didn't always wait until after the show to let people know he was upset. Sometimes he'd find people in the middle of a show, like he'd yell out something, and while most in the audience hadn't even noticed a mistake, the band knew someone had just gotten fined. Production manager Leroy Bennett saw this happen many times. I mean, he was pretty ruthless with this public humiliation. I mean, he even did it during live shows. He would call people out. (laughs) If they made a mistake during the show... He'd turn around and pull the whole James Brown thing and just say, you know, he'd say $50. Basically saying he's fining him $50 for messing up. Brown Mark said the fines for onstage mistakes could be a lot more than $50. I remember one day my fine was up to $1,200. $1,200 in one day. Yeah. What did you do to, to rack up $1,200 of fines? Just missing cues, you know. You just... Not paying attention again, you know, man, I'm dancing, I'm having a good old time, man. You know, I'm spinning around, trying to act like a fool. And all of a sudden, he'd be like, you know, and I'm still playing. I'm like, dang it. <laughs> Everybody done stopped and I'm rumbling. He did it a lot. 
But Prince was also savvy enough to know different people had to be dealt with in different ways. He knew he couldn't yell at everyone. Manager Alan Leeds said he was good at figuring out just what someone could take. It depended on who it was. His way of dealing with people depended entirely on how much he thought they would take. There were certain people in the band that were punching bags because he just knew he could insult them, he could talk about the mama, he could do whatever he wanted to do, say or do, and they'd still be there tomorrow, ready to go. There were other people, like my brother, who weren't going to take that. Alan's brother, saxophonist Eric Leeds, was in the revolution for many years, and he was a deeply valued member. But when he ran into trouble, well, I'll let Alan tell the story. We had an after show somewhere in Europe, I think, in, in Rotterdam or something. And it was one of those nights where he called an after show and Eric wasn't feeling well. And on top of which, it had been a long day with a long sound check. And we just traveled the night before. And it was just one of those grueling days that no, nobody was feeling it. The crew was worn out. The band was worn out. But he was insistent that we're going to do this, this club show. So, of course, everybody sucked it up and we did the show, except Eric. He said, you tell him I'm sick, you tell him whatever you want to tell him, but I'm not going. I'm just not going. And I spent about 10 minutes like, look, dude, you're putting me in the middle of this. You're my brother. This isn't, if it's somebody else in the band, I don't care. But, you know, now I'm caught in the middle of this. And he's like, I don't care. That's too bad. So we get to the gate. Where's Eric? And I said, he wasn't feeling well. He stayed back at the hotel. Call him and tell him. I said, come over. And I said, he ain't coming. Oh, okay. So the next day, Eric showed up at Soundcheck, like usual, great attitude, friendly, had a good night's sleep. I'm feeling better. And it was, you know, I gave everybody a big bonus last night. And it was true. Now, most after shows, nobody got anything extra. Now, I might add, he paid his musicians very well, way better than anybody else in that era. But it was understood that you were getting paid really well because it meant if he wanted to record or do an after show or rehearse for 10 hours, you were there, no questions asked. So his way of messing with Eric was simply to say, look, everybody else got like 500 bucks extra last night, and you didn't. Brown Mark was a bassist in the revolution, and he said Prince sometimes dealt with problems in a far more aggressive way. I come from a bar band. And so we're programmed. We, we get conditioned to play a certain way uh, when you play in the bar and you're playing cover tunes all the time. So uh, we were playing head, and I was just playing it how I learned it, you know? I just listened to it and uh, played it how I thought it sounded to me. In his first rehearsal with Prince in the band, he learned that the way he'd been playing was not up to Prince's standard. And he learned this the hard way. And so I got in there and I was just playing it, you know, boom, bum, 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 like that, right? That joke turned around, looked at me, did a circle back, bam, I was like, oh. And I felt, I was like, did he just kick me? Prince kicked him in his behind. He just kicked me. You know, I'm baffled. Ain't nobody ever kicked me without a fight. I mean, I, I'm like, he just kicked me. And then, so we start playing. Comes back around again. I, you know, he circled around. I didn't see him. All of a sudden, bam! Kicked me dead. Pointed toe boots. Dead in the crack. <laughs> the crack. And I was like, oh! 
I turned around that time. I was like, oh, oh I'm going to bust him up now. I'm going to bust him up because I was like, you know, now, now you're messing with my manhood. Now you're testing me. And, you know, I'm six feet tall. He's five, two. But before he was with Prince, he was playing in a bar band and working at a 7-Eleven. And he knew that if he attacked Prince, he'd get kicked out of the band and be right back at that 7-Eleven. Are you going to throw this away right now? Because that's where it was at. It's like, are you going to throw this away? Because I was ready to beat him down. And I had to really think about it. And I said, why would he kick me? What is he doing? And he came back around again. You know, and this time I was ready for him, but he whispered in my ear. He said, you better play the bass or I'll find somebody who will. I was so mad. I went home, told my mom what happened, and she kind of told me what happened. And she said, kind of like a POW, you get captured, they have to break you in order for you to be obedient to what it is that they're, what they're trying to do. And I, and she was, told me he's trying to break you. He, he's trying to break you from all your old habits and your old patterns. How he does it is he's taking away all your dignity and taking away everything so that you don't have no pride, you don't have nothing. He's stripping you down. If you fight him, then you just lost. You can fight and win, but then you lose. But if you take what he's trying to do and you run with it, you're going to learn something. I sat down and I was like, what is it he's trying to teach me? What, what is it he's trying to say? I started listening to the record again. And then I started to replay it. And then that's when I, it clicked. I'm playing the notes. I'm not feeling it. So that was the lesson. I didn't know that was a lesson, but I was like, that's the only thing I could pick up. And I remember I went back to rehearsal the next day. He does that to me this time. It's, it's going to be lights out, you know, because I wasn't going to deal with it no more. And uh, we started playing and he came did that circle. He came around, you know, and I'm looking at him like this. I'm like, oh, snap. And then he came up to me and he whispered in me. He said, that's what I'm talking about. I was like, whoa, you couldn't just tell me that, bro. <laughs> you couldn't just, you couldn't just say, you know, you need to play it with some feel. You got to kick a brother and break him down like that, you know. But he was weird like that, man. He, he would do things just to get a reaction from you to see how you were going to respond. And that wasn't the only time Prince kicked him. Oh, yeah. There was a, a time on stage, man. This dude did a Bruce Lee flying drop kick dead in my chest. Kicked me all the way back up on the drum riser. Kicked me all the way up on the drum riser. Because we collided. There was choreography that we all did with Why You Want to Treat Me So Bad where me, Prince, and Dez come together. And he was so excited with adrenaline that he forgot that that's what we were doing at that very set, that moment. And he spun around and he ran into me. And I'm bigger than him, so, you know, it was like, bam, he hit a brick wall, right? So I just kind of played it off and backed up. But he was embarrassed. And I think the way that he chose to play that off was to, like, I, I forget what they call it. Remember, remember how the punk rockers, they all just kind of run into each other, uh, smash dance, whatever they call it. Yeah, and so he called himself doing that. And he just, man, I'm serious. He ran at me full speed. And I said, oh, this doesn't look good. And he was all the way up in there and said, pow, hit me dead in my chest with his boot. I just shook my head. And that time I had enough. And I, I took my bass off. And I was holding it like a baseball bat. I was coming at him. His back was turning to me. I was coming out. I was going to pound him right in the back of the head. And security came. Boom, grabbed me. Cause they were watching the whole thing. They was like, oh, he about to snap. They was waiting for me to snap. And they grabbed me. 
they prevented me from hitting him. But I did damage the locker room. I tore the locker room up, you know, so he had to pay for that. Because, <laughs> you know, I did some damage in there. I stalled doors, everything. I kicked them down, sinks, mirrors. I was really angry. I went in there, tore the locker room up, tore the locker room up. And then later that night, I remember uh, Chick came knocking on my door. He said, oh, the kid wants to see you. I was like, I don't want to see him. So I don't want to see him because I was going home tomorrow. I was leaving. I said, I don't want to see him. I, I don't want to do this no more. I'm done. And then um, I remember he, he came in the room. Me and Chick became really good friends, you know, from hanging out on the road. And he came in the room and he started talking to me and he said, you know, Man, he does some dumb stuff, man. You know, he, he cares about you. He really cares about you, man. I was like, cares about me? I said, he, did, did you see the video? I said, he did a flying drop kick. He kicked me like Bruce Lee dead in my chest. He embarrassed me in front of all them people. And he's like, man, Mark, don't throw this away. Don't throw this away. And I remember I was just like torn about it. And so the next morning I got up and I went on the bus and he came up to me and like, Nothing happened. He came up to me like, nothing happened, man. He started talking. He's like, well, uh, you know, I was watching the video last night. Man, that was pretty cool, wasn't it? <laughs> that, that was pretty cool. I said, you kicked me in my chest. He said, uh, "He said, man, that was just part of the skit. You know what I mean? You know, we collided. And so, you know, that's how you play it off, man. We just had to make it look like we were slam dancing. You know, we were just, yeah, we were just, you know, being like punk rockers. We were just going crazy on stage. That's part of the energy. He was making all that crap up because he knows he messed up. He knew he did me wrong. Several of the people who worked for Prince say they feared his moods. He loved to make jokes, but coming from the boss, sometimes a harsh joke could come across as cruel. One of his bodyguards, a man named Hucky Austin, said Prince once teased him about his clothes in front of everyone. I used to wear bandanas all the time, and so they were doing a rehearsal for Get Off. I came in a rehearsal room one day, and uh, he stopped the music. He said, Hucky, you know who you look like? And I'm like, no, who do I look like? He said, man, you look like Harriet Tubman. And everybody busted out laughing at me, you know, and, um, and I left. But here's the interesting thing. Prince had a sensitive side. To. Although he would never tell you that he was sorry, he, he, he would show that he was sorry by his actions. And, and here's what I mean by that. So, you know, everybody's laughing at me, so he could obviously see that my feelings were hurt. So the next day, I came to rehearsal, and I look up, and he's got a bandana on, just like I wear. And so I asked him, I said, hey, I, I thought yesterday you said I look like Harriet Tubman. He said, you did, but I make it look sexy. You know, but that was like his way to say, hey, man, I'm sorry. Look, you know, I'm going to do it now, too. Prince could be a lot of fun to be around as long as he was in charge. He loved playing pranks as a way of performing for people while keeping them off balance. One frequent prank he pulled a lot in the early 80s went like this. He'd tell you that he could transform into a black cat. You'd say, yeah, right. He'd say, watch me. Then he'd walk out a revolving door or around a corner and a moment later, an actual black cat would come walking back from where he'd gone. Then he'd run around to another door or something and slip back to you like nothing had ever happened. He carried a black cat around with him on tour just to pull this prank on people. He also loved quietly tiptoeing up beside people and surprising them, maybe making them jump as he sort of appeared out of nowhere. 
Sometimes in the early 80s, he'd sneak up behind you and get down on all fours while you were talking to a bandmate of his or somebody so that when the bandmate gave you a little push, you'd fall back over Prince. Prince liked tripping people. Such a little prankster. He also loved playing table tennis. And apparently, he was great at it. Like, really great. It was another chance for him to compete and win and boss up. Randy St. Nicholas saw this herself. Did you ever see Forrest Gump? The ping pong sequence in that movie? (laughs) Okay, Prince beat everyone. Uh, No one's ever beat him at ping pong. He was brilliant at it. And he would just effortlessly hit the ball, and everyone else is struggling and running back and forth across the table trying to get the ball, and he would just be like in one position with just like a flick of his wrist, you know, making it look all so easy, back and forth and try to get the ball, and I'm just going to stand in one position and just kind of tap it, and it's going to send you running. This is just part of his sense of humor. And you had to be there because you were just laughing the whole time because you couldn't believe it that he could be that good, but he was that good. Photographer Afshin Shahidi also saw it. I wondered how he got so good at ping pong. There's something about his hand-eye coordination, and I think it all goes to the fact that, you know, he's this phenomenal guitar player, but uh, he was good, and he could do trick shots and spins, and and the whole time he, he is talking smack. If he can't beat you... You know, physically, he will mentally uh, beat you, which, which is pretty funny to, to watch if it's not happening to you. I remember him saying something like, uh, you know, you feel like going home now, don't you? You, you want to go home, right? You want to go home? You can go home. <laughs> Alan Leeds said Prince once played with Michael Jackson. No, I wasn't there. I heard Prince's version of it. It's like, he can't play ping pong. He can't play ping pong. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> I mean, Prince was a master table tennis player. You do not try to play table tennis with Prince. I mean, he will humiliate you. He got moves you don't even know exist. I mean, I've never seen a champion professional table tennis player, but I got to imagine that he could hang (laughs) because he was serious. I mean, just slam stuff, and before you know it, the balls are hitting you in the eye. It's like, it was crazy. Like, don't play eight ball with him. He will embarrass you. You will never get a shot. If he shoots first, you will not play. You'll just hold your cue all night. He was that guy. Shahidi also said Prince was great at playing pool. He was also a, a pool shark. He was a great pool player. You know, I joke about having paid for part of college shooting pool, so I was not bad. Um, and the first time I played him, I thought, okay, let me let me go easy. I don't want to beat the boss too bad on the you know the the first time. It's not a good look. He cleared the table. I didn't even have a chance. And I'm like, okay, so it's like that. And he enjoyed winning, and he kind of, you know, he, he walked around and did a little bit of the color of money Tom Cruise thing with his pool stick, you know, like like using it like a nunchuck and going up to the ball. He was he was pretty cocky when he, when he shot pool or played basketball or, or even played ping pong. But then again, he was cocky when he played the guitar, too, so. When Prince was in a good mood, he was fun. But when he wasn't... He struck fear in all around him. Jerome saw the two sides of Prince. There seems to be like a desire to relate to and treat the people in his world like family. And yet then moments of being mean to people where it's like, damn, like. He was mean. 
I, I, he was mean to people. I seen him be mean. Jerome got fired because... Shit, I got fired because I was hanging out with Janet Jackson and Herb Albert and Ron Isley doing videos and stuff. They, they hired me for what I learned around Prince. I was playing both sides of the fence, like you said. <laughs> he has uh, one of his people call me and say, man, what happened? You can't work it out with him? Oh, man. Oh, man, he's going to miss you. He wants me to let you go. Okay, so he said, give him a call. He told you to call a couple minutes. I, was, I knew he was hurt. He birthed me into this, this business. He knew the business. He had a creative formula. And he wasn't the best in explaining what he wanted to do. <laughs> but, you know, again, when you start giving up your secrets, then your secrets get used and you're not needed anymore anyway. Jerome said Prince demanded absolute loyalty from his people because he was teaching them his secret sauce, and if they took his lessons to another camp, then that would make Prince a little less unique. Morris Day said he was never afraid of Prince, but he saw that others were. Some days he was all business, and then some days he's like, uh, you know, a comedian, and then... Um, but always a musician through all of it. Uh, but I, I, I noticed later on... Um, in life, I went by Paisley Park a few times, and uh, I noticed the staff was always kind of asking, he, he came in, is he smiling? Is he happy? You know, everybody's worried about what kind of mood this dude was going to be in. Production manager Leroy Bennett is one of the employees who did worry about Prince's moods. People would perceive that he was difficult because he was a perfectionist. You know, he had high standards, and rightly so. And either you could follow it or you couldn't. And, you know, sometimes for musicians it was difficult because he was a better musician than them. And sometimes I think that he would think that they got exactly what was going on in his head without saying anything. And so when they wouldn't do what he was thinking in his head, he'd get frustrated. When I arrived in Minneapolis, the first five days were hell. <laughs> he expected me to know every single song he had ever written. And when I got to into rehearsals, I'm very good at listening to a song one time and then I've got it. And I, I knew what, uh, what needed to be done. And he didn't quite understand how things take time when you're starting to program lights and stuff like that. And so he would just really humiliate me in front of everybody. But fortunately, the band was very sympathetic to it um, because they, they also received the same kind of... Uh, just the, the, the same treatment. I mean, it, it, Bobby Z came up to me after the second or third day, and he just gave me a big hug. And he says, don't worry about it, man. It's just the way he is. I'd go back to the hotel, and I'd cry. I'd go, what the hell am I doing? But I wasn't going to give up. So once Stephen Farnoli's manager showed up, told Prince, he said, look, you know, just calm down. He's, you know, Roy's doing a good job. And, he's, and at that point, he did back off, and he started to watch what I was doing and understood I was focused and doing my job the way he wanted it. So from that point on, we became really close. We watched Eraserhead like three or four times, the David Lynch movie. He, he had this brief obsession with it. I don't know what it was, but it would just be the two of us sitting in his living room watching it. It basically is a really drone-sounding, it, it's just a monotonous film. It, it's freaky, it's really disturbing. I mean, the whole soundtrack was just this constant drone sound. 
And so we just sit there, eat popcorn, and watch the, <laughs> watch the movie. But even after Bennett felt close to Prince, he remained hard to work for. One of the worst ones, was, I think it was on Love Sexy. He just said, I thought I was working with a bunch of professionals. <laughs> he said that on stage? Yes. Like I said, I was lucky I never got that, but it was so intense that I felt it. You know, it put knots in my stomach watching other people get these comments or this, you know, berated in front of everybody. I mean, rehearsals could be that way. It was like every time I walked into Paisley Park, I used to, even though I knew I was going to be okay, I just had this sick feeling in my stomach just because I knew what was coming. And he would humiliate you in front of people, and then he, if he, he was wrong for doing it because of any kind of circumstance that, you know, it wasn't somebody's fault. And he realized that it wasn't their fault and that he was wrong and he would try to make them feel better without saying, I'm sorry. I just remember the emotional feeling of how I felt when all that stuff was going down. Now, it was tough watching people get humiliated. He had a funny sense of humor. He could be a little nerdy at times. You know, he was shy, he was awkward. But a lot of it is because he was so brilliant that it was, I mean, he had a lot of patience up to a certain point. I mean, he was very hard on himself. He pushed himself constantly, and he expected that everybody else would work on that same level. Because he probably did that to himself, inwardly. So he figured if he did it to himself, he could do it to anybody. He would get frustrated if somebody didn't get exactly what he was thinking. Didn't want to constantly have to repeat himself. Really had to be on the ball and be on the same wavelength with him. You know, I think sometimes he was really lonely. I felt that he didn't think anybody could live in his world, in his head, in his world that he lived in every day. And I think, I'm sure it was really a very lonely world. And didn't trust people. He was also very fragile. And I think that's what I saw more than anything else. I didn't, I didn't focus in on the anger and the nastiness. I don't think how he treated people was right. I know he felt bad when he did it sometimes. I mean, he didn't, he'd never say sorry, but you could just tell. He would do things that would, you knew that he was saying sorry without saying sorry. That said, Bennett loves Prince and is beyond grateful for the time he had with him. I, I'm so blessed to have worked with him. I mean, I can't say I wouldn't be where I am now if it wasn't, if I didn't work for him, but he definitely made me see who I am. He had a way of looking into people and seeing that they could do more than what they thought they could do, and he, that's why he was pushing people. My experience with him was way different than a lot of people, and I, you know, I, I, I had a really good relationship with him, and, but I also understand that he was a complete asshole sometimes. Many people said Prince was a visionary who changed their lives because he saw potential in them that they did not see in themselves, and he filled them with confidence and gave them opportunities that transformed their lives. If he believed in you, he could push you up to new heights. We heard this from Morris Day back in Chapter 2. He was a shy drummer when Prince said, you should be the lead singer of the new group I'm forming. Prince was like, why don't you do it? And I said, uh... Uh, I said, I don't really want to do that. Besides, I'm a drummer. He said, you could do it, man. So I said, I don't even know what I would do as a lead singer of a band. And he said, just put your hand in your pocket and be cool. That group was called The Time. And thanks to Prince, Morris became a great front man. Prince had similar interactions with all sorts of people, not just musicians. Photographer Steve Park got that treatment. Yeah, you just got opportunities with him that nobody else was likely to give you. He, he would see oh, your creative 
brain and your creative abilities and and challenge you and push you and and kind of really bring out what you could do that probably you wouldn't do for yourself. Randy photographed the Diamonds and Pearls album cover, and Prince liked it so much he told her she was going to direct his next video for his wild single, Get Off. But she wasn't a video director. I photographed him, and then he called me over to look at the pictures, and he goes, I want you to direct my music video, my next music video. And I said, I'm not interested in being a director. I'm a photographer. You know, I don't really want to direct a music video. He goes, yes, you do. I go, I do? He said, yeah. I just said, you can have anyone. I don't know what you, why you want me. And he said, I think you see me. He said, I think you're the one to change the way I'm perceived visually. And so I went home and I thought about it. And I thought, you know, you, can't, you just couldn't say no to him. He's not that guy. He, you want to please him. You want to do whatever he wants you to do, and you want to excel at it. So I agreed to do it. The job began with him saying, you need to speak to this person at the record company about when we need to do it and about the budget. And I'm like, I don't talk about budgets. He goes, yeah, but I need you to. So I went, all right. So I get on the phone with the person from the record company who promptly says to me, let me be clear when I tell you this. We are not doing a video for that song. There's no way we're, we're releasing it. It's not coming out. So let's not even have this conversation. So Prince calls me, goes, so how'd your conversation go? I go, well, here's exactly how it went. And I told him the story. He goes, uh, <clears throat> he clears his throat and he goes, <clears throat> Randy, excuse me. I'll call you back in a few minutes. He hangs up. And a few minutes later, the same person calls me back and goes, uh, correction, we are going to do that music video. Here's what we need. Uh, when are you available to do it? Suddenly the music video was back on. And Prince calls me. He goes, I want it to be kind of like that movie Caligula. And I'm thinking, okay, so it's going to be a wild sexual orgy. Okay, I can do it. <laughs> so I watched the movie several times, took the red eye to Minnesota, got right off the plane, went to the set, and when I walked into Paisley Park, I had all these extras come running up to me going, we'll get naked on camera, we'll have sex if you want us to on camera, I'll make out with, my sister and I will make out with each other on set if you want, and I'm like, whoa, I was like, hey, am I in LA making a porno movie, what am I doing, oh, this, it was so crazy, and there was 150 extras and the crew, we had about 200 people in total on this crew and on the set. And I'd done big advertising jobs, but maybe with a crew of like 20 people. This thing was huge. And the set was built, and the band had been rehearsing, and the dancers, Diamond and Pearl, had been rehearsing. And so I walked right onto the set and instantly started directing. And I had my monitor on one side of the stage, and Prince had his on the other side of the stage, maybe like... 20 feet between us and it was like three weeks of being thrown into like the most amazing film school because you had all the bells and whistles all the stuff you needed no you know no financial restrictions and there was no sleeping or eating so all you did was just work around the clock it was kind of a really amazing experience and obviously that experience was one I loved because I think I've done about 350 music videos since then and direct commercials and things too. Changed my life completely. 
Afshin Shahidi is a photographer who's also the father of Yara Shahidi, the star of Blackish and Grownish. And years before he was a dad, he found his career elevated because Prince took the time to see who he really was. I had worked with Prince for 10 years prior to starting to photograph him. I, I worked on music videos. One of my first jobs in the, in the industry was uh, loading film on a music video for him. And, you know, my interaction with him was very professional up to the point where I started becoming more of a creative collaborator and started, instead of being a technician, you know, loading film or pulling focus, uh, I started lighting and I started shooting some of the music videos and some of the short films. And there we, we would have deeper kind of, not philosophical, but would refer to some of the masters like Rembrandt and Degas. And he would go back to those paintings like, why can't we do that? Let's do that. <laughs> and I said, they did that all with natural light and I would love to recreate that. And this is what it would take. You know, he had already been photographed by some of the greatest photographers. So I, I felt like I had pretty big shoes to fill. And for me at that time, transitioning and becoming a photographer was really a, an accident because I was a hobbyist, but I wasn't billing myself out as a photographer. And, and he saw something in the quality of my lighting and, and the other things that we did together in motion and said, I know that that could translate and hopefully be powerful. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth the First. Elizabeth the First, the podcast, wherever you listen. Prince loved celebrating the people who worked for him. Keyboardist Morris Hayes said that when the band had a tour date in the hometown of a band member, Prince would give that band member money to give to the local school or library or whatever so they would look like a big shot at home. What we would do is when we would go to anybody's city, Prince would find out, you know, where did you go to high school? And then he'd just get one of those big giant paper checks and just like make out a hundred grand or whatever it was and just give it to her school. It just was really cool. And I used to live in Chicago, and we were going to Chicago, and he just called me up and he says, I, I want you to find, like, three places where we can give some money to, like, uh, find three charities and, uh, you know, help me find some places so we can, you know, get this money. But that's the kind of thing he would do, would just say, just find a place, and we're just going to give him a bunch of money. Just like that, man. And it was just like, it was just so awesome, you know, that he would just do that in everybody's city. Prince's generosity was as gigantic as his privacy around his gifts. So many people benefited from his largesse, and yet he was always quiet about it. Whenever someone he loved was in trouble, he was there. Alan Leeds recalled how Prince helped one of James Brown's drummers. Clyde Stubblefield, the James Brown funky drummer, fought cancer for several of the last years of his life. And Prince found out about it, and like many musicians of that particular era, no kind of decent insurance. And I didn't know Prince even knew him, but he had sent him like $100,000 to pay medical bills. And nobody knew that, but him and Clyde and whoever sent the check. That's very typical of Prince, who was extremely philanthropic and generous, quietly giving all the time to people and causes he believed in, and doing it without fanfare. Singer and girlfriend Jill Jones saw him giving a lot. 
Everybody has some wonderful stories, and like one thing that I I will never forget was the Marva Collins School. We were on tour, and he went and he he would give money to people. That's really true. He gave to people, and he did not look for a claim from it at all. So it was always interesting when I saw that he started to put his face and his name to things like with Baltimore, and he started coming out more. But he still never was always that comfortable with telling people just how much money he did give. He was sort of like he would just give it. He just liked his money to be spent on quality, you know? He liked to see the people beneath him have good things happen to them, especially if it was because of him. Prince's engineer, Susan Rogers, said... Then I think it would have been around 85, um, maybe even 84. And we were working at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles. I had to leave the control room and I had to take this phone call from the realtor because I'm, I'm buying a condominium in, uh, on Lake Harriet and I just needed to talk to the realtor. Prince called Gilbert Davison, his valet at the time, into the room and he said a few words to Gilbert and Gilbert left. And about half an hour later, Gilbert came back in the room with a bottle of champagne and those champagne glasses. And he opened it and he poured us champagne and Prince looked at me and he said, when I was a kid, I used to dream that I would own a house on Lake Harriet. Now I have people working for me who own a house on Lake Harriet. And we clinked glasses and and it was one of those moments where when you look at each other and you realize our dreams have come true, haven't they? I understood what it meant that a victory for me represented a victory for him too. But Prince also took from those around him when he wanted to. Brown Mark, a bassist in the Revolution, says that during his time in the group, if Prince heard him or someone else working on something hot, he would take it and make it his own. And he could be, let's say, stingy about giving writer credits. We never wrote the stuff on our own. It was always, the maestro was always present when we were doing things, but... I would come super early and start working on material. And uh, he would walk in, I'm like, dang. Every time he'd walk in early, he'd show up early, I was like, man, he gonna take this. And uh, sure enough, he walked up to me, he was like, uh, what's that? Oh, it's just this jam I'm working on. And then he was like, Phew. he said, yeah, man, that's, yeah, get that again. And that's it, he'd go grab his guitar and that was it. I knew I lost it. And then, <laughs> And then as the band trickled in, he started going up and jamming on their instrument, dishing parts out. And next thing you know, see, he'll take the whole thing over. And then you you don't get any credit for it. There there was nothing to show that I even uh, created the basic groove for the song. He says Prince wrote the first version of Kiss, but it wasn't quite working. He started the song, he gave me a cassette tape. Uh, it was a cassette tape of him singing the words with an acoustic guitar. And I hated it because it just sounded like an old folk song, something Bob Dylan or somebody would do. And he said, you know, you should do this because it will give Maserati a different feel. Maserati was a band Mark was developing. So I said, all right, man. I, I said, I'll give it a shot. First thing I did, me and Dave Rifkin, first thing we did was in the studio. And uh, because I always used him for engineering. And first thing I did is came up with the beat. Did the drum beat, then uh, put the guitar apart. It was just acoustic. Dave's like, 
Mark, that'd be cool. We put the key pecs on it. I was like, do it. Let's see what it sounded like. And so the strong started coming. I was like, ooh, I need some logs. We call them log drums, the DX7 log drum program. So the song started coming together, right? And uh, I was using a DX drum machine. That song was written on a DX, uh, the Oberheim. And so it had a different sound, a whole different feel than what the Prince stuff was doing. So Prince walks in because we were getting ready to go to dinner. And he was like, um, you should let me work on that a little bit. <laughs> he said, what time are you coming back? I already knew what that meant. I was like, dang, man. I was like, he going to take this. He going to take this. So sure enough, we came back from dinner. He did not want them in the studio. He came and got me. He said, he said come on, I want, I want you to hear something. All I heard is, <laughs> and then he came and singing. With that falsetto, I was like, oh, man, I said, he took this song. Then he said, uh, he said, man, this would be a better hit on us. I think we should just, we should release it on the Revolution album. I'm thinking, cha-ching. I'm like, you mean I'm going to get a song on a Rev album? He was like, yeah, man. He said, you know, he said, you know how to take care of things. And, you know, this will be a hit. And it was a hit. I was driving down the street when I heard it on the radio. Didn't know it was even released. Got to the hotel room on MTV, saw the premiere video, and I was pissed. Because I was like, dude, he couldn't even tell me when it was coming out. Did not tell me that they had a video. Couldn't even incorporate me in the video. I was like, I was like, bro, I was heated. Then I got the album cover, the first, the first print on it. If I remember, it said, thanks to Brown Mark for hand claps. I was like, whoa, and so that's when I found him. Because at that time period, he was hard to get a hold of. He was always hard to get a hold of. But I found him, and I just went off, man. I was like, yo, dude, you know, what is this? You you promised this, this, this. He says, oh, that must be a mistake. He says, man, don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you. I didn't know about royalties and all this kind of stuff yet. I hadn't learned all that stuff. And so he said he was going to take care of me. So I, I was like, okay. He, I trust him. He's going to do this. He's going to do me right. I ain't never seen an ounce of change on that song. Not one penny. The whole groove, he wrote the lyrics and the melody. I wrote that groove. That was all me, 100%. They know if sans buts about it. He says that wasn't the only song he wrote that Prince kind of took from him. Girls and Boys. Girls and Boys was my groove. I was grooving on Girls and Boys before anybody heard anything about it. Um, that's when we got the new rolling stuff. And again, I was in there early and I was, uh, working on a jam, you know, and it was, uh, playing that on the bass. Walks in, it's the same, it's the same story, you know, it's like, what's that? And, you know, I knew then, you just hit your head because you know it's gone. You lost it. But Prince needed to be in charge. He had to always be the boss. Always. Anytime he was called to share the spotlight in any way, he rebelled. He was way too competitive for that. He had a constant need to show you who's boss. Alan Leeds knew that side of him well. He was extremely insecure 
and as a result, very, very competitive. He had to prove, every day he had to prove his worth somehow. Um, every jam session became a, a competition. You played basketball with him, you knew what that was like. Everything was a competition. If you watched a movie with him, it was a race to see who figured out how it would end first. I mean, everything was competitive because he had to just continue to prove and reprove his dominance, his superiority, um, his intellect, any, any, any skill set at all. He felt he had to prove it over and over and over again. Susanna Melvoin saw that a lot, too. He was a great competitor. I mean, he would have been truly a, the finest athlete in any, if, if he had gone that route, he had that kind of drive and he couldn't cope with a loss. He was not great with losing or having feelings of loss. So that fueled his competitiveness. He was competitive at everything, including being the best dressed, to being the best musician, to having the most drive, to working the longest hours, to, you know, so many of the things, anything that he put himself in, he would have to be the best. Alan Leeds. Now that served him really well as a youngster and somebody who was determined to carve out his career, retain as much creative control over it as possible, that served him very well. But once he was established as a superstar, you could see where that insecurity actually worked against him sometimes because you reach a point where you're so successful that, that behaving that way is, is kind of, it should be beneath you. And I think about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame concert where he famously played the George Harrison song with Tom Petty and God knows how many other famous guitar players on stage. And he just came out and shredded it. This was 2004, a tribute to George Harrison, the late great Beatle, a murderer's row of players on stage to salute him. Tom Petty, Steve Winwood, Jeff Lynne. There was Harrison's son. They did Harrison's beautiful, melancholic, unforgettable song, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Prince soloed last and he destroyed. He was clearly the best player there. As one friend said, it seemed like they all held guitars while Prince was at one with his. His solo is powerful and soulful and amazing and he takes the song to a new place and then at the end, he leaves. And instead of hugging all the other players as everybody else on the stage did at the end of this jam, you know, he threw his guitar up in the air to his roadie and stomped off stage. Almost defiantly, like, see? Even at a show to commemorate the late, great Beatle, Prince couldn't help but make it all about himself. Couldn't help but competing and showing others up. And he couldn't help but run off stage and refuse to join in when the whole group was coming together for a hug and a bow and a nod to someone who had passed away. And that sort of immaturity was him all the time. Once in Europe, this would have been the 80s, I can't tell you exactly what city or what date, but it was an after show, probably London or Paris, and Bruce Springsteen happened to be in town. And as Prince would occasionally do, if there were celebrities in the house, he'd bring him out on the encore just to jam. And it was probably one of those 10-minute versions of Baby I'm a Star or something. At any rate, Springsteen came out, had a guitar, played a few licks and so on and so on, and, and at the end of the show, we're in the dressing room talking, Springsteen's gone home or wherever he was off to, 
And Princess just sit there cackling. See, I told you he couldn't play guitar. I told you he couldn't hang with us. And it was like, why do you have to do that? You've proven yourself. Right now you're selling more records than Springsteen does. It's like, come on, dude. It's, it shouldn't be about that on this level. Leroy Bennett was Prince's lighting and set designer for the first 14 years of Prince's career. He was a musician's musician. He was highly regarded and respected by every musician. I mean, they would, we had all sorts of people show up, particularly at Purple Rain. had a bunch of different guests that come and play. And for them, it was a great honor to be up on stage. And these people like Eric Clapton and Ron Wood and Sting all these people and I think he was intimidating to him sometimes he did a horrible thing to sting one <laughs> well he had hand signals that meant certain turnarounds and accents and all that stuff and we all the band knew it I knew him and so he had sting was on stage I can't remember what the song was but sting knew the song and so he was playing along playing the bass and then all of a sudden Prince just just to fuck with him, started do, doing all these hand signals and all this stuff, and finally Sting just put his hands up and gave up. It was his territory, it was his house, and I'm the boss. And I think that's what you know was going on in his head. Prince's biggest unnecessary flex ever is probably the time he snubbed the recording of We Are The World, the biggest, most iconic charity song of all time. Let me set the scene. The year is 1985, and there's a massive years-long famine going on in Ethiopia. The whole world is crying about it. The people and the children of Ethiopia are just withering away. Images of babies with stick-like arms and distended bellies are everywhere. A million people have died, and everyone's trying to help as much as they can. Harry Belafonte, the legendary actor and singer, starts a project to help combat hunger in Africa and in America, too. He recruits several of the biggest singers of the time to spearhead it. Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Kenny Rogers, Lionel Richie, and one of the biggest producers of the time, Quincy Jones. They say, okay, we're going to write and record an anthem that will bring attention and donations to help the starving people. And they're going to get the supergroup to end all supergroups to come and sing it. More than 40 of the biggest singers in the world were called, including Ray Charles, Billy Joel, Diana Ross, Bruce Springsteen, Tina Turner, Paul Simon, Bob Dylan, on and on and on. 50 famous singers were turned away. Of course, Prince was then one of the biggest artists in the world, and they had planned a special section of the song where Prince and Michael Jackson would sing to each other, thus setting Prince up as one of the most special of the special. Alan Leeds told him he should definitely go do it. Obviously, Prince was invited, and um, his management, as well as his record company, everybody in his orbit persuaded him to go. Just the idea of so many superstars in one room working on the same project, it just seemed like he should be there for the history of it. The song was being recorded in L.A. right after the American Music Awards, when everyone who was anyone in the music business would be there. Was Prince in town? Yep. We were in Los Angeles on the Purple Rain tour. He thought about it. The night of the recording, he was still hemming and hawing. But in the end... He's like, no, 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 no. That's a click over there. Quincy and Michael, I'm not going over there and let them manipulate me and just be a guest on their record. That's not what I do. Prince refused to drive a few minutes across L.A. to be a part of We Are the World. Because Prince had to always be the boss. 
he couldn't not be in charge. He didn't uh, come out on group jams. He didn't do those kinds of concerts and benefits. He would do them himself because he believed in causes, but he wasn't going to put himself in any situation where he was not in 100% control. And what was Prince doing while almost every other star in the musical universe was at A&M Studios recording We Are the World, which would go on to sell over 20 million copies and become a national phenomenon and raise tens of millions of dollars for the cause? Where was Prince while that piece of pop history was being recorded? Prince was in his hotel, just chilling. After the awards, we went back to his hotel in Westwood, and we were hanging out in his room, and there were several of us there. We had a few drinks, and all we kept saying to him was like, okay, dude, you cannot go out tonight. And, of course, Prince famously liked to go out in town and run the clubs and so on. Of course, he wanted to go to the clubs, and we said, no, dude, you can't. You can't. If you're not going to do the We Are the World session, which is where everybody else in the business is, if you're not going to in and studios to participate in that, then don't go out because it's not going to read right. If you're out hanging around while everybody else in the industry is donating their time and energy and creativity to a worthy cause. And he said, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. So so we hung with him at his hotel until probably 1 in the morning, maybe one thirty. I don't know exactly what time it was. And finally we felt he was in for the night and was safe to go back to, back to our room. Gwen and I went back to our room and ended up going to bed, called it a night and about 3 in the morning my phone rang, which was odd because the only person who would call me that hour would be Prince. So I picked it up, and, but it was Chick, his, his big Chick, his bodyguard. And he was like in his southern drawl, sounding like a wrestler. He said, buddy, we got a problem. And he went on to tell me that, that they had, in fact, gone to a club, sure enough, gone to a club and got into an altercation with an aggressive paparazzi that one of the bodyguards had punched. Prince's bodyguard, Hucky Austin, was there. So, you know, he didn't like to have his picture taken. And so we came out of, I think it's El Pavaro, Carl's and Charlie's. It was right off Sunset up there. And uh, when we came out, there was a bunch of photographers outside in a nightclub, and they were taking pictures and stuff. Chick came back and said, you guys got to go get that film. And, you know, I'm like thinking to myself, I was like, this is, this is not going to be good. This is going to be a problem. Photographers are like, I'm not giving you my film. And so I, I think that it turned into a tussle. The police were called. The bodyguard was locked up. And this was going to be all over the press. So it was, it was the, the nth degree of everything we warned him about. And, of course, the next day, the stories were right there in USA Today, right next to each other. One of them about this miraculous recording session where every celebrity in the world was in one studio singing one song, and the adjoining story was Prince at a nightclub having a photographer beaten up. Not a good look. That's a terrible look. Why, Prince? Why? (sighs) But despite him sometimes having a bad look figuratively, the man almost never had a bad look literally. He could dress. He was fly. In our next chapter, chapter six, We'll explore the world of Prince's clothes and the people who worked for him to make them. Because Prince had designers and tailors working for him around the clock so he could always wear custom and always look good. Prince and his clothes. Next chapter of Who Was Prince? Thanks for listening to Who Was Prince. Please share with your friends if you like the show. Our executive producers were me, Torre, Chris Colbert, Adele Coleman, and Ryan Woodhall. Our technical producer, Byron Hunt. And our distribution was by DCP Entertainment.